0: It's New Year's Eve 2005, and across the city of Tampa, Florida, celebrations are in full swing. Music drifts out of half-open windows, and partygoers stagger down the streets in search of a drink. But for Aileen Nicolau and her 20-year-old daughter, Taryn, the tone is a little more muted. They've decided to stay in and enjoy some peace and quiet while Aileen's son, 17-year-old Nick, is at a party at a friend's house. Their relaxed night is interrupted by a noise from the back door. Aileen isn't expecting anyone. She doesn't have time to get up from her seat at the dining table to investigate before a familiar face walks in. Although, not one that's welcome. It's her estranged husband, Michael. They've been separated for a few months now. Frayed tempers and a shared addiction to painkillers hasn't made for a great marriage. But the final straw came when he broke her shoulder during an argument. She and her children have been staying at her sister's house ever since. Aileen looks down at what Michael's carrying and feels the panic rise in her chest. In one hand, he's holding a guitar case. In the other, an M1 carbine rifle. Her first thought is for her daughter's safety and she suggests they go into her bedroom where they can talk privately. Presumably, Aileen hopes that by getting him alone, not only will her daughter be spared, but she might stand a better chance of talking him down. She reminds herself, perhaps, that they have a history, not all of it bad. Maybe she can diffuse the situation once she gets him alone. All she needs is time. Unbeknownst to both Michael and Aileen, Aileen's sister has already snuck out of the house and called 911. It's not long before the front of the house is bathed in blue and red from the patrol cars arriving. Officers urge him to surrender his weapon and come out, but a series of gunshots cut through the night. They break down the door, but it's too late for Aileen. Officers find her dead in her bedroom, blood spatter speckling her floral bedspread. Taryn lies fatally wounded in another room, along with Michael, who has turned the gun on himself rather than be taken alive. The tragic scene might sound like the end of the story, but in fact, it's just the latest chapter in a much darker tale. Michael's horrific actions on New Year's Eve will draw the attention of a private detective, Lynn Marie Carty, who's already been hired to look into the mysterious disappearance of Michael's first wife. The murders of Aileen and Taryn reveal a pattern, One that spans decades. A trial of murdered women whose cases have gone unsolved. But it's all just speculation until through her research, Cardi discovers the deathbed confession of a man named Gary Westover made decades earlier. A confession which, if true, may unmask Michael as the infamous Connecticut River Valley killer. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Gary Westover, of the words he allegedly spoke as he lay dying, about Michael Nicolau, whose first wife may have met a similar fate to Aileen, Seven families left shattered by a series of brutal murders. A private investigator determined to give them the answers that the police couldn't. And the hunt to unmask one of the most elusive serial killers of the past few decades. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Serial killers are found the world over. But if you ask people to name any, the most well-known cases tend to be found in America. Names like Bundy and Dahmer loom large in people's memories, even years after they've been caught. There's often a strange fascination in the media when cases hit the headlines. All leave a trail of destruction in their wake until they're stopped. Some remain unsolved. One such case dates back to the late 70s. Seven homicides are cited by police as being linked to the man they dubbed the Connecticut River Valley Killer. In a spree that spanned a decade, this killer murdered at least seven women and was suspected of being responsible for five more. But they have never been caught, their identity remaining a secret. The murders all have a similar MO, women traveling alone, each body found bearing distinctive wound patterns from knife attacks. Some of the bodies are dumped within a few miles of each other. These factors combine to convince investigators that they are looking for one man. The first victim is 26-year-old Kathy Milliken. She's last seen on her way to photograph birds at a wetland reserve in New Hampshire on October 24, 1978. Her body is found the following day. Cause of death, 29 stab wounds. It takes almost three years for the killer to strike again. This time, it's a young hitchhiker, 25-year-old Mary Elizabeth Critchley. She disappears on July 25th, 1981. Her body is found 15 days later near the town of Unity, New Hampshire. Although due to the condition of her remains, the coroner is unable to determine the cause of death. 17-year-old trainee nurse Bernice Cotemanche is next. She's reported missing on May 30th, 1984 after hitching along Route 12 in New Hampshire, although her body isn't found for almost two years. Less than two months after Bernice goes missing, 27-year-old Ellen Freed, a senior nurse at a hospital near Claremont, New Hampshire, becomes victim number four. She makes a late-night call to her sister from a local payphone. Her sister remembers her mentioning a car driving back and forth past her, but the two just continue their conversation. It's the last anyone hears from her, and her body turns up the following year in the woods besides the Sugar River in nearby Kellyville. The following year, in 1986, 27-year-old Ava Morse disappears while hitchhiking near Claremont. She's found stabbed to death only 500 feet from where Mary Critchley's body had been discovered in 1981. It's not until the sixth murder that police receive their first real break. 36-year-old Linda Moore is stabbed in April 1986 while doing yard work outside her house. While nobody saw it happen, witnesses do recall seeing a man in his early to mid-20s hanging around, and sketch artists are able to pull a composite together from their accounts. The resulting image is of a man between 25 and 30 with short dark hair and glasses. The final victim is another nurse. 38 year old Barbara Agnew spends January 10th, 1987, skiing with friends in Stratton, Vermont. She never makes it home. A snowplow driver finds her car at a rest stop on I 91. Her car door is open a crack and there is blood on the steering wheel. Two months later, Barbara's body is found stabbed to death under an apple tree outside Heartland, Vermont. She was only 10 miles from home the night she vanished, and investigators have never understood why she'd pulled over. While Barbara is the last of seven confirmed victims to die, it isn't the final attack. That comes 18 months later in August 1988, and when it does, the killer does something they haven't done before. They make a mistake and leave their victim alive. It's August 6th, 1988. The sun dips below the horizon in the county of New Swansea, painting the sky a burnt orange. 22-year-old Jane Baroski is on her way home from a local fair when she decides to pull into a convenience store to grab a soda. The lights are on inside, but she spies a closed sign hanging on the door. Luckily, there's a vending machine off to the side. At seven months pregnant, she struggles to maneuver out from behind the wheel, but manages to ease herself out and grab a drink. She has just returned to her car and closed the door behind her when she spots a Jeep Wagoneer parking nearby. Jane watches in her rearview as the driver gets out and comes around to her side. It's a man in his mid-20s and he bends down towards her open window, asking if she knows whether the payphone is working. Jane barely has time to get a reply out when his hand shoots through the window. He grabs a fistful of her sweater and pulls her towards the window. She fights back, leaning away with all her strength, one hand going reflexively to her belly, the other trying to loosen his grip. It's no good. He's too strong and the click of the door opening as he yanks the handle sends her heart racing. He jerks her out and throws her up against the side of the car. His face is a twisted mask of fury as he shouts at her, accusing her of beating up his girlfriend. Have you got Massachusetts plates on your car? He asks, and the randomness of the question takes her by surprise. No, she replies, New Hampshire. Jane's about to deny his accusations, to tell him she hasn't beaten anyone up and point out that she's heavily pregnant in the hope he'll show her mercy. The words catch in her throat as she sees him pull something from the waistband of his jeans, holding it low by his side. It's a knife. What happens next is a blur. Pain explodes everywhere. All she can think is of her unborn child and whether she'll ever get to meet them. Then, as quickly as it began, the attack is over. The man leaves her for dead and drives off. Incredibly, despite having been stabbed 27 times, Jane manages to drag herself back into her car and drive to a friend's house nearby. As she nears their driveway, she realizes in horror that she recognizes the car driving in the same direction ahead of her. It's the same Jeep Wagoneer she has just seen her attacker drive off in. Is he going to try and finish what he started? She takes no chances and swings off the road into her friend's driveway, beeping the horn for attention. As they come running out, The Jeep passes by one last time in the opposite direction before disappearing around the bend. She's rushed to the hospital where miraculously, she's told her baby is alive and well. Jane, however, is in much worse shape. Her injuries include a severed jugular, two collapsed lungs, lacerations to one of her kidneys, and severed tendons in her knees. It's going to be a long road to a full recovery but she has survived her brush with death. She's able to give police a description of her attacker that matches the sketch they have of the man suspected of being the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Jane is even able to give them the first three digits of the Jeep's license plates. But despite this, police are unable to trace either the vehicle or its driver, and the trail goes cold. While the case stays open, there aren't any developments for almost a decade. When it comes though, it's from a direction no one saw coming. It's October 1997. The town of Grafton, New Hampshire is easing its way towards winter. Sidewalks carpeted by brown leaves. A little over a thousand people call it home. And it's the kind of small town where everybody knows each other's business. An exception to that rule is 46-year-old Gary Westover, who has been keeping a secret of seismic proportions to himself for years now. Westover has been paralyzed all of his adult life, following a diving accident. He's wheelchair-bound and only has partial use of one arm. He has been sleeping at his uncle Howard's house and has woken up shouting. His cousin Cindy runs to his bedside. I'm going to hell, Cindy, he says, and asks her to fetch his uncle. Howard Minnan is a retired sheriff's deputy and someone Westover trusts implicitly. I'm going to hell, Uncle Howard, he repeats. And I've got something to tell you. Minnan sends his daughter out of the room, and she waits in the kitchen with her mother until he emerges. When he does, whatever was said has shaken him to his core. He looks pale and can't bring himself to share what Westover told him until the following day. According to Westover, back on January 10th, 1987, three friends had come to pick him up for what they promised would be a night of partying. They loaded his wheelchair into their truck and drove the hundred miles north to Vermont. Instead of a night in a bar, Westover claims his buddies abducted Barbara Agnew, acknowledged by police to be a victim of the Connecticut River Valley killer. Westover goes on to say that the three men murdered her, then dumped her body. Minnan does what any former law enforcement officer would do. He reports it to the police, but for reasons not made public, detectives at the time don't appear to take any action as a result of the new information. The specifics of what Minnan shares is never made public, including the names of the three men and what part each of them played that night. Five months after unburdening himself to Minnan, Gary Westover dies in March, 1998 without ever being interviewed in connection to Barbara Agnew's murder. The case disappears from the public eye and might have stayed that way were it not for the tenacity of one woman. Lynn Marie Cardi is a 49-year-old private investigator living in St. Petersburg, Florida. On New Year's Day 2006, she's laid up on the sofa suffering from a cold, reading the newspaper when a story catches her eye. It's an article about Michael Nicolau and the murder of his wife and stepdaughter. Cardi is already acquainted with Michael. He'd been married three times in total, and she had previously been hired to find Michael's second wife, Michelle, who had vanished from their home in Massachusetts in December, 1988. Michael told anyone who asked that she had left the kids with him and relocated to Florida. But Michelle's family didn't believe his story. She never would have abandoned her children, and plus, not long before she disappeared, Michelle gave them an eerie warning. If I'm ever missing, he killed me, she told them, referring to Michael. Cardi never did find out what happened to Michelle, but reading this tragic story years later, she searches in Google for New England murders in 1988 to see if anything ever turned up in Michelle's case. A few more clicks reveal the series of murders that predated Borowski's attack, and Cardi feels herself being pulled down a rabbit hole. Immediately, patterns begin to emerge. Several of the victims were nurses, just like Michael's first wife and his mother. The last murder took place only months before Michelle vanished, and Michael hightailed it to Florida. Jane Borowski's account of her attack says that a man used a martial arts style grip as he dragged her out of the car. Michael was a black belt in karate. To top it all off, the artist's sketch Jane was able to help with bears a striking resemblance to photos of Michael Nicolau. Put the two side by side and the similarities between hairstyle and glasses in particular in both is hard to miss. Cardi is hooked. She manages to find a number for Michael's first wife, Susan, and calls her. Susan's voice becomes shaky as soon as Michael's name is mentioned. "'I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to talk about him,' she tells Cardi. Cardi presses on, asking what kind of car he used to drive. "'I got away from him,' is the response she gets. "'Were you afraid of him?' she presses on. "'What do you think?' Susan fires back before ending the conversation. Next, Cardi turns her attention to Michael's family. After the murder-suicide, his mother is quoted in the press as saying he had been beaten as a child by his stepfather. His actual father was a registered sex offender, who she divorced when Michael was three. Cardi's research is thorough, building up a picture of a troubled man. A former member of the Air Force Michael had been charged in 1971 with murdering civilians while fighting in Vietnam, but charges were dropped for lack of evidence. It's the small details that nag at Cardi. Looking back over her notes on Michelle Nicolau's disappearance, it bothers her that Michelle left without taking some of her most treasured possessions, like a baby book full of notes and keepsakes to do with her children. Cardi sends numerous emails to Michelle's family, with dozens of questions she's desperate to answer. Most have nothing new to add, but one unnamed relation confirms that Michael used to drive a station wagon with wood panels back in the 80s. Cardi's thoughts go immediately to the wood-paneled Jeep Wagoneer that Jane Borofsky, the survivor of the final attack, had described. Former military acquaintances offer a bleak insight into the man they knew. He won a pair of purple hearts and two silver stars, but they recall a darker side to him. On one occasion, they say he had left the camp in the Mekong Delta armed only with a knife, saying he was going hunting for humans. Cardi also discovers that Michael once owned a sex shop and had been convicted of supplying obscene materials via his business. She finds an interview with a local newspaper from back then where Michael is quoted as saying, Evidently, the police don't have enough serious robberies, murders, and rapes to occupy their time. Cardi circles this quote and can't help but feel that it has a deeper meaning. Her research turns up another name that intrigues her. John Philpin is a criminal psychologist and has intimate knowledge of the Connecticut River Valley killer case. He was asked by detectives back in the 80s to build a profile of their suspect. Philpin believes they're looking for a man prone to outbursts of rage, someone who was close to his mother, but whose father was abusive, absent, or both. Someone with a history of voyeurism and who spends a lot of time on the road. He measures Michael against these traits and finds he matches every single one. Cardi gets in touch with Philpin, not only to pick his brains, but to share what she knows. Who better to run her theory by than a man who has already spent months trying to get inside the killer's mind. She lays it all out for him and asks him outright if Michael could be their man. Philpin agrees that she could be onto something, calling her work the first major lead in years. By February, 2006, Cardi feels confident enough in the case she's built to take it to the New Hampshire police. Detective Steve Rowland is the man in charge of following up leads on the case. Pinned to the bulletin board by his desk is a row of pictures all seven confirmed victims of the Connecticut River Valley Killer. He's used to people calling up with weird and wonderful theories about old crimes. Cardi is the first call he's had on this case in over six months though. And once she starts speaking, she has him hooked. It takes her a full half hour to run him through everything. Incredibly, Michael's name has never surfaced in connection with the investigation until now. Roland asks her to send him everything she has on him. And just like that, the investigation is revived. By April, Michael is one of three suspects. Although Roland will not name the other two, other than to say that they are both still alive. This means that without probable cause, police cannot compel them to offer up DNA samples. That's not the case with Michael, but samples of his DNA aren't available. It's not clear if they've been misplaced or destroyed. Roland is a cautious man, and while he won't tell the press whether Michael is their man, he is quoted as saying, his profile fits the profile of somebody that would commit this type of crime. There is no question about that. On the basis of Michael's rocky childhood, his war trauma, his capacity for violence, and his issues with women, Roland reaches out to other police departments for help. Tampa PD supplies his fingerprints. And Roland finds out that the Hillsboro County Medical Examiner has a sample of Michael's DNA. It also emerges from an unnamed member of the Nicolau family that he had traveled regularly into the Connecticut River Valley area during the time of the murders. Cardi makes another significant connection from Michelle Nicolau's baby book that may link Michael to one of the Connecticut River Valley killer's victims. A note she scribbled inside places the Nicolau family in Hanover, New Hampshire on Thanksgiving 1986. A stone's throw from the hospital that Barbara Agnew, the killer's last confirmed fatality, had worked at when she disappeared. Cardi is also able to confirm that the Nicolau stayed in the area over Christmas 1986 and into January, around the same time Barbara Agnew was killed. Roland promises Cardi they'll test Michael's fingerprints on record against some found in Barbara Agnew's car, but it's not clear whether this took place and, if it did, what the results were. At the same time that Roland is raking over Cardi's findings, Howard Minnen, the uncle with whom Gary Westover shared details of Barbara Agnew's murder, is declining in health. He's admitted to hospital with an unspecified illness when he sees a newspaper article about the information Cardi has come forward with. He's visibly shaken and tells visiting family that this ties in with Gary's story. This is what I tried to tell the state police, he says, but they treated me like a fool. I have wasted my whole life in law enforcement. They did nothing about what I told them and he killed more people. His family encourages him to reach out to Cardi, but he holds off wanting to find the original piece of paper on which he scribbled down the names of the three men Gary claimed were there that night. Sadly, before he can do anything of the sort, Minnan's health declines rapidly, and he dies in the fall of 2006 without finding the list. In the weeks after Minnan's death, one of Gary Westover's aunts writes a letter to Barbara Agnew's sister, Anna, She, too, had overheard Westover's confession back in October 1997 and feels compelled to pass on what she knows. She, like Howard Minnen, is convinced that Westover was telling the truth. In her letter, she writes, This is an awful thing to write, so I know it is a much worse thing to read, but I want you to know why I believe he was telling the truth. He said he never got over that awful feeling. He had been afraid of the men who killed her because he was helpless to defend himself or his family. Now his conscience overrode his fear. Anna Agnew forwards a copy of the letter onto Lynn Marie Cardi, having seen the press coverage about her being the driving force behind renewed interest in the case. The letter captures the essence of Gary Westover's deathbed confession from Anna's recollection and paints a picture of what allegedly happened the night that Barbara Agnew was abducted. For Cardi, it helps even more pieces fall into place. One aspect of the case that police had a hard time squaring away was why Barbara had stopped that night. She only had 10 miles to go and was driving through a snowstorm. What could have persuaded her to pull over in those conditions? Cardi believes she now has the answer. Barbara's friends and family all described her as kind-hearted. Had Westover's three friends used him as bait? Enticing Barbara to pull over and help a wheelchair bound man in the snow? Added to this is the fact that Westover's aunt, who wrote the letter, recognizes Michael's name as an acquaintance of her nephew. She believes that the two men met at a local Veterans Affairs hospital, although this is never confirmed. The one thing Cardi doesn't have is the list with all three names that Westover shared with his uncle. The original that Howard Minon wrote out back in 1997 has been lost, but Cardi knows from Westover's aunt that the police were provided with a copy. She passes this latest round of information to Vermont State Police and continues doggedly pursuing her own investigation. Cardi tracks down Jane Boroski, the lone survivor of the Connecticut River Valley killer in 2007. She shows pictures of Michael to Jane, who says she believes he was the man who attacked her. Jane is later quoted in a press interview after she has seen the photo as saying, there's no doubt in my mind it was Nicolau. It's not just a question of relying on her recognizing a picture, though. Back when she was attacked, Jane had given the police the last three digits of the car her attacker drove. Cardi vibrates with excitement when she hears them they are an exact match to the vehicle that Michael was driving at the time. Surely now it's only a matter of time before Michael is officially unmasked as the Connecticut River Valley killer. But for reasons not made public, the police won't go any further than saying Michael is an official suspect. Towards the end of 2007, however, while the investigation seems to slow to a glacial pace, Cardi realizes that Michael's legacy isn't just about those he allegedly killed. There are those left behind too. Like his son, Nick. Nick Nicolau hadn't been there the night his father killed his mom and sister, and he's lived with survivor's guilt for the past 2 agonizing years. Reporters still relentlessly call him with questions and he's tortured by the articles that constantly come out in the press. It all seems to come to a head when in late 2007, standing in the line of the grocery store, he sees his dad's face staring at him on the cover of a magazine. The article covers Cardi's investigation on his father's link to the Connecticut River Valley killings and talks about a possible TV option. Nick sees red. He just wants this all to finally end. Why can't the press just leave his family alone? In a rage... He tracks down Cardi's number and calls her. You're ruining my life! He yells. How could you do this to me? I hate you! He's still only 19 and Cardi feels a pang of pity for what he must be going through. She extends an offer to talk, but he tells her he wants nothing to do with her. It isn't until two years later that Nick hits rock bottom He's still torn by the murders of his mom and sister and is contemplating suicide. Being known as Michael Nicolau's son is like a cancer eating away at him. He's all alone and homeless, having fallen out with a few friends he had. And in a moment of desperation, he remembers the offer of help that Cardi extended. He calls her unsure of what he even wants from her, but remembers that she had been so nice to him first time round, even in the face of his anger. I want help, he tells her. I want a chance at a new life, and I I can't do it on my own. This puts Cardi in a unique situation. How do you help the son of an alleged serial killer while trying to prove his dad's crimes? Cardi has a contact who is a producer on the popular TV show, Dr. Phil. The show has a regular feature where they help people in exchange for them sharing their stories. She meets Nick for the first time in person out in Los Angeles in October 2009 and producers agree to help him find a new apartment and earn his high school diploma. The episode he appears on is an emotional one. Not only does he talk openly about his father and his fears that Cardi's allegations are true, he also meets Jane Baroski, the only survivor of Michael's alleged attacks. The two cling together on stage for a long moment, both choked up with the intensity of the connection they share. Nick sobs, telling her he is so sorry. Don't be, she says to him. You're not him. You're not him. You're here to get help. It's a turning point for Nick, who gets his life back on track after the appearance. He stays in touch with Cardi, They talk regularly and he tells anyone who asks that she's his guardian angel. With all the misery that the Connecticut River Valley Killer brought to the area, this at least stands out as a sign that life can go on for those left behind. For Cardi, this is as far as things progress. Investigators in charge of the new case confirm that Michael continues to be a suspect to this day, but say that they don't have enough evidence to wrap it up they won't comment on whether Michael's DNA is a match to the crime scene samples or even whether any tests have been done. The whole thing seems a rather bizarre conclusion for some, including profiler John Philpin. He has studied everything Cardi has uncovered, including Westover's deathbed confession, and believes it's credible. Given the point that this guy was at in his life, says Philpin, I can't see why he would be telling anything other than the truth. He doesn't mince his words when asked about the lack of progress after all of Cardi's hard work. It's totally inadequate, he says at the investigation. I'm very dismayed by it. As for Cardi, she continues to badger the New Hampshire PD for updates. Even with the case seemingly grinding back to a halt, she remains convinced that Michael is their man. For now, though, she has to be content with saving his son. Because in taking his own life, Michael has ensured he could never stand trial for his alleged crimes. Officially, the crimes remain unsolved. But for Cardi, Jane Borowski, and John Philpin, they've got enough to feel a sense of closure, even without a conviction. Next week on Deathbed Confessions we hear the historic myth of the Nazi gold train. In the spring of 1945, as World War II was coming to a close and the Red Army charged towards Berlin, a Nazi train sped into Poland. It was rumored to be laden with worldly treasures, piles of money, and bags of shining gold. But after it entered the Polish mountains, it disappeared forever. Now, over 70 years since its disappearance, two men in Poland believe they have the coordinates of the train's location and the tools to unearth its dark, enthralling mysteries. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.